Well, greetings once again. Thank you for tuning in to watch our um, online version of our messages. Today, I have the privilege of continuing our series in the book of Matthew that I've titled The King from Heaven. And last time, if you remember, we went over the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety, kind of looked at the whole um, saw the whole sermon as a single piece of literature and observed what Jesus was doing and how it was really about him. And it's about how we can be like him. Uh, we could never do it without him. And, uh, and so it's a pretty cool study. I just want to also thank you that um, I realize that this is a um, sort of a first run for me on these messages. And so it's helpful for me as I prepare for the Sunday morning live message. So this is sort of a rehearsal for me. So thank you for bearing with that. And um, let's go ahead and get started. So today, again, uh, what we want to do today is study the Beatitudes, that, that section where Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And it's the introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it might be among the most famous passages of the Bible, similar to the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer. The Beatitudes are widely published. And so let me read them for us and then we will begin. So in Matthew chapter 3, start, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 3, we have, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray a minute. Father, thank you so much for um, revealing your person to us. You have not just revealed your will, but you've also revealed yourself. And so we take pleasure and delight in the fact that we can know you, and we thank you so much that you have worked in such a way as um, to forgive our sins through the work of the Lord Jesus so that you can have fellowship with us and we can know you even more closely, that our, our, our sins have been forgiven, we're reconciled with you, we're no longer your enemy. We even have the privilege of calling you Father. And so we just thank you so much and ask that you would give us insight today as we study your word and try to understand what it means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that I especially like about <clears throat> this kind of study is, is that I can do some things with definitions and structures. And so I like to look at the literary structure of a particular uh, passage of Scripture, be it a psalm or some part of Genesis or something like that. And, and I like to try to understand what it means in a big way and in a structural way. And so what I've done here is I've kind of summarized or or shorten the Beatitudes. Um, the first column is the, the first part, the condition that must be true, um, almost like the premise of a statement. And then the second part is the promise or the, 
or the fulfillment of it. So poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, merciful, um, pure in heart, peacemakers and persecuted. Each one of those starts with blessed, blessed, blessed. And then the reward or the consequence of those things is the kingdom of heaven, that they'll be comforted, they'll inherit the earth, they'll be filled with righteousness, they'll be shown mercy, they'll see God, and they'll be called children of God, and again, the kingdom of heaven. And so these are the basic things, and I, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on definitions. Uh, poor in spirit is, is kind of like humility, but it's more than humility. It's a realization that in our spiritual self, we are impoverished, we have nothing to offer. So it's not just uh, recognizing ourselves as lowly, it's recognizing ourselves that we do not have any intrinsic um, meritorious value in our own spirit as we stand before God. And then the mourning, there's just the word for being sad, for the same kind of thing you would do when you grieve, you would wail, you would cry. So mourning when you lose something. Meekness is an interesting word. It is not the same as humility, although it's a, certainly similar. And it's sort of almost like the idea of being um, super um, gentle. The concept of having power and yet using that power in a soft way. I remember having a gentleman that was one of the deacons of our church when I was a little boy, and he was actually my first supervisor, my first job when I was like 10 years old as I got the job of shoveling the sidewalk on Sunday mornings. And I worked for this guy, and his name was Olin Tilma, Ole Tilma. He was one of the founders of Bond Construction, which is no longer in business, but and he's with the Lord by now. But anyway, he was able to drive a, a hydraulic crane so carefully. He had all this huge power of this big scoop, but he could take your glasses off with it. He was so gentle in his control of it. So meekness is this idea of all this super hydraulic power and yet not exerted in a way that causes harm or in a way that amplifies itself, but in a way that is meek, that is gentle and safe. And so meekness is um, a quick way of saying it, I've often said is it's power under control. And then hungering and thirsting for righteousness is uh, your most basic, deep internal drives. Your, the first thing you got to have is water and you got to have food. And so for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. So it's just the idea of wanting to be right with God, having a righteousness that pleases God. Then uh, merciful is just the idea of giving mercy when somebody doesn't deserve something, you can give it to them, that's grace. But if somebody does deserve a punishment and you don't give it to them, then that's mercy. And so withholding harm, withholding harm even if it would otherwise be deserved, giving somebody a break, giving somebody a second chance, that's what being merciful is. Pure in heart is just the idea of being um, without a uh, bad motive, without any flaw, without any wickedness in your heart, being uh, pure-minded, being clean and not um, duplicitous, not trying to pull a fast one, not do a trick, not being a schemer. A peacemaker is a person who uh, is involved in making peace, and there's always at least two ways of viewing this. One way is, is as a peacemaker, I could come in and try to help party A and party B uh, race, uh, resolve their differences and be reconciled. And so I would be a peacemaker in a conflict between two other people. So that's one way of being a peacemaker. But there's 
another way that I think is quite a bit harder, and that's when I'm in a conflict with somebody and I need to make peace with them. And so that it requires me to uh, humble myself, ask for forgiveness, and to uh, seek their, um, their kindness, seek grace for them, and to admit my own fault. And so peacemakers as a person, to be a peacemaker as a person who's willing to make peace even when it costs us something. We have to want peace. We have to want the relationship to be restored more than we want the opposites of us being proven right or us winning the fight or us getting our own way. And so in some ways to be a peacemaker, you actually have to be willing to be wronged, to have it not go fairly because you care more about the other person. And then to be persecuted is to be uh, accused and attacked and um, otherwise treated harshly by people. Uh, you can't get persecuted by a wild animal. You can't get persecuted by an illness. You can't get persecuted by poverty. Persecution requires a person who attacks you. And so there's an intentional, intelligent person who on the other side is trying to cause you harm and trying to bring about difficulty in your life. They're persecuting, they're attacking you. It requires a person to do that. And, um, and so that's what those meanings are. I think the, the rewards are sort of self-evident then. Kingdom of heaven is you get to be part of God's kingdom. You get comfort from your mourning. You get to inherit the earth. And so inherit is to take as a, as a reward, as a compensation, as a, um, something that was given to you by virtue of your relationship with the owner. So you inherit something. And then being filled, filled with righteousness is satiated. Your hunger and thirst is satisfied and more than you're filled. And then being shown mercy is what comes when you are merciful. So you get, when you deserve worse, you can be shown mercy. Somebody can remove the punishment that you deserve. And being able to see God is actually to just be able to, with your eyes, with your heart, with your mind, be able to see God in his presence. And then as a peacemaker, to be called children of God is to be named, to be labeled as, you are a child of God, aren't you? You, you act like a child. It's like, a, it's like an attribute of your life that you are characteristic of your father. So you get to be called a child of God. And then again, the kingdom of heaven. So those are my definitions. And then I wanted to talk about some structure. First of all, the first question is, are there eight or nine? Beatitudes, because I did not include the ninth one in my little uh, double list there. Let me read the eighth and ninth together a minute and see if I can explain how I view that. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what I would count the eighth one. And then the next verse, I consider a um, an expansion or an explanation of this eighth one. So uh, I think Jesus breaks out of the poetic form and kind of does a description in the same way that in the Lord's Prayer, we go through our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our day, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the next one, he says, for if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. So Jesus does an explanation section after he explains the, um, his, the way that we should pray. And so I think he does an explanation here. After saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he said, and blessed are you, and the NIV picks up on this too, I think they changed the structure of the text, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So what Jesus is doing, he said, when I say blessed are you when people persecute, blessed are the persecuted, he's defining what it means to be persecuted. And that's when people insult, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of things against you. And it's not just for you because you're a liar and a jerk or anything like that, but it's because of me, because of Jesus. That's when your persecution comes. It's sure enough that we can get people to say evil things about us, but that's just because we do evil things. What Jesus is talking about here is when people say evil things about you because of our alignment with Jesus. And then he also goes on and explains why um, the kingdom of heaven is theirs and also why it's such a blessing. He said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching us that there's a reason to be glad because this puts us in good company. If you had to get on which side of history you wanted to be, and uh, you know you hear people making decisions because they want to be on the right side of history. They don't want to be perceived as on the wrong side of history, doing something wrong in culture or whatever. Um, I'd want to be on the same side of history as Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's just, you, you, if you do these things and you're persecuted, that's the way they treated the prophets. And so people who tell the truth of God, even when it costs them things, even when somebody else is persecuting them, that's what it means. And that's why we can rejoice and be glad. So that that's so I consider that there's eight beatitudes, and the um, the ninth one, this ninth blessing, is an expansion or ex explanation of the eighth one, for clarification purposes. Another question you could ask is, are they present, or comparing the present and the future? If you look at them again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in both of those, the, the promise is a present tense promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I also want to say that because of this beginning with the kingdom of heaven and ending with the kingdom of heaven, that's another reason that I see that eighth one as sort of being the final one. And so, but the rest of them, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled with righteousness. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. So the other Six, and between those first and last ones are future tense promises. So that's kind of interesting. Doesn't necessarily mean that the future is way, way, way off in the future. It just means that there's a consequence, a, a reward, a, an event that happens in the future after the morning. But those who are poor in spirit is the kingdom of heaven. And so that, that's kind of interesting to me too. Another question or another way to look at this is, to talk about reversals and rewards. If you look at the first four, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those are all reversals. You reverse from poor to blessed by the kingdom. You reverse from being sad, mourning, to being comforted. You reverse from being meek and um, not in control or uh, being gentle you get to inherit the earth. You get to, the reversal is huge. You're not low, you're, you're the powerful one. You get reversed from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the reversal is 
a filling with righteousness. So there's this um, reversal part in the first four. But the next four, the second four, they don't have reversals necessarily. They have basically what I would call, um, what was the word I used? Let's look back at that. Rewards. And so merciful becomes a reward of being shown mercy. Being pure in heart is rewarded by seeing God. It's not a reversal of pure in heart. You don't become not pure in heart. You get the reward of seeing God. If you're a peacemaker, you get the reward of being called the children of God. And if you're persecuted, you get the reward of the kingdom of heaven. And so, um, interestingly, the reversal of being poor in spirit is being in the kingdom. And the reward of being persecuted is being in the kingdom. So that's an interesting thing, the first and the last. But again, I just wanted to point out that one of the ways to look at this is the first four have reversals. And the second four, the last four, have sort of a reward structure. There's another um, way to think about it, and that is perhaps what is going on here is the, the idea of distinctions and fillings. And so what I mean to say here is that sort of the pattern that we see in the account of creation, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, on the first three days, he distinguished night, um, dark from light, and then he distinguished the sea from the, um, the skies from the air. So he separated the water. So he separated the dark and the light. He just made a distinction between the sky. And on the third day, he made a distinction between dry ground and the water. And so there's distinction, distinction, and distinction. But then on day four, five, and six, what God does is he fills. And so on day four, he fills the sky that he has made a distinction with the stars and the moon. And on the second or on the fifth day, then he fills the waters and the skies with fish and birds. And then on the sixth day, he fills the land with beasts and, and then human beings are created. So there's this, 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 <clears throat> there is this pattern of making distinctions and then fillings. And so again, if you look at the Beatitudes, the, um, the first four, you could view them as being distinctions, right? A poor in spirit versus a proud person. Or one who mourns versus someone who is um, uh, rejoicing or giddy or goofy or foolish and happy. Or a meek person versus a proud person. Or a hungering and thirsting person as uh, versus a person who feels satisfied or ready. So there's the distinctions being made in the first four. But then some could say that the next four fill up those first four. So if you're poor in spirit... Um, what that does is it fills up and manifests itself according to this pattern in that you become full in your spirit. You are able to give mercy to other people and you receive mercy. And if you mourn down in your heart, if you're so, uh, if you feel that distinction of mourning, then you have a pureness in heart. You're not duplicitous and you're, you're filled with a purity of heart. And if you're meek and willing to be gentle and not have to be the winner all the time, then you are filled with the ability to be a peacemaker. And if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you will be filled with being persecuted for righteousness. You will get your righteousness. You will be filled with righteousness, but it will result in persecution. So maybe there's a little bit of that pattern going on, sort of a, a distinction and then a filling. Uh, that's an interesting way to think of it. Uh, um, yet another way to look at these, and, and we could meditate on these for eons, and I think we will, actually. 
But um, there's another way to look at it, and that is what I call a spiraling progress of growth, of spiritual growth. If you look at these um, things, if you look at them in a progressive way, you start being poor in spirit. You realize, I realize that I don't have anything to offer God. And that leads me to start to mourn about, I feel so sad about what I've done. And I've so terribly offended God and I'm so guilty of sin. And because of that, I realize that I have no power of my own. I have no reason to exert my own self. I, I need to be meek. And, it, and those things combined make me so hungry to be righteous. I want to be valued for a good thing. I want righteousness in my life so much. And so I just beg for it. And, and what happens after that is that I learn to have mercy on others who do not have um, righteousness either. I, how can I be judgmental to you when I see how much God has done to me? And that leads me to be pure in heart. And then that leads me to be a peacemaker. And ultimately, I'm able to be persecuted for Jesus' sake with great strength and courage. And so this, this, this progress in my spiritual growth could be mapped out. I bet you, um, probably as a pastor, I shouldn't say I bet you. But anyway, we're not a gambler's. But uh, what I, I'm trying to say is that I would propose that in your own life, you could probably mark your own spiritual journey as having a stage of being uh, realizing your need for salvation and then that growing into a greater sense of your meekness and a greater sense of needing to be merciful to others. And then you, you accomplish purity in heart more and more and you start to become relationally more of a peacemaker with others. And then eventually you would even be... Um, persecuted as a mature Christian. And so those things all happen in a progressive way. And again, all of the blessings come as a result on the right-hand side. But uh, the reason I said spiraling progress is because it doesn't end there, that when you are persecuted for Jesus' sake, you re it goes back to being poor in spirit. In other words, this, doesn't, this is not a linear sequence. It's like a a sequential life. It's uh, it's like a spiraling growth. I, I more and more appear in spirit, more and more persecuted, more and more. And so they builds up and builds up and we grow in a spiraling progress towards what Jesus wants us to be. And it's like himself. And because of that possibility, I had once studied and I, I saw connections to what I saw in First Peter chapter 1. In First Peter chapter 1, Paul, or excuse me, Peter says, that we should um, add to our faith goodness and the goodness knowledge and the knowledge self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, um, um, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness love. And so there's the eight things that Peter describes that we're supposed to have more and more and more. And when we have those and more and more, they keep us from being unproductive or in, in, in our faith in Jesus. And if anyone does not have them, it's like we've forgotten that we've been forgiven from our sins. And so I think there's a connection there. And if you, you put them next to each other, if you put the, the eight Beatitudes, poor in spirit all the way down, and then you put the eight steps that Peter has, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brother, kindness, and love. Um, when I put them next to each other, I noticed that there was really strong correlation between at least four of them. The idea of being poor in spirit felt to me an awful lot like the prerequisite for faith, right? It's not by works, it's by faith. I realize I have nothing to offer God. He doesn't owe me salvation. And so that's part of what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's what it means to trust God instead of trust myself. The idea of being hungering and thirsting for righteousness, my most basic physical desires. 
And the word that um, Peter uses for self-control is exactly that, controlling our body. So I saw a lot of strong correlation that between uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the idea of wanting self-control. Um, to be pure in heart and that lining up with godliness, being a, a person who's like God, who practices um, godliness in Peter's context there is the word that's often used for piety, to do different uh, pious works, praying and stuff like that. Those flow out of a pure heart. And what could be a better way to describe a peacemaker, someone who is brotherly kindness? This is the phileo love. This is brotherly love. And the idea of loving one another and, and creating peace within the body. So if those four lined up so well, I wondered about the others. And I think I was able to find some a link between those. Um, Paul, like for meekness and knowledge, Paul says pride puffs up. Excuse me, knowledge puffs up but uh, love builds up. And so if we're going to have knowledge, we also need to have meekness working. And so in some ways, I almost thought that, that Peter might have taken Jesus's eight Beatitudes and meditated on them and, re, and didn't modify them or take them away, but he, he applied them and reworked them in his thinking into a progressive way. And um, I was excited to see the connection between merciful and perseverance. And one of James as uh, verses about how Job persevered and he was able to be an inspiration. He persevered. And the next text that Job that James says is, God is able to give mercy unto whomever he gives mercy. And so the whole idea of obtaining mercy from God in our sufferings is to give us the ability to persevere. And that's what we ask for. And so I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing as well. So those are the Beatitudes. And those are the rewards that come after them. And I would imagine that I could go on and on about these definitions and structures. And so I just hope that that was maybe helpful for you. But what I wanted to do now is um, basically make four more points. And the first one is that J Jesus came to be the premise statement. So Jesus came to be the first thing. That was his purpose. So if we look at the first one, Jesus came in this earth, born as a baby in a humble state to be pure in spirit, poor in spirit. So he came to do that. That was his calling. That was what he came to be. He came to fulfill the first part. He was not poor in spirit. He was the most powerful spirit. He was the infinite spirit of God himself. And Jesus became for us. He, he, he came to become poor in spirit, to be lowly to be accepted and to be therefore to lead us into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to mourn. He came and he mourned at the at the um, at the grave of Lazarus. He mourned over the sin of of Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks, but you chicks, but you would not have me. And so he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if there was any person who who had all the power in the world, it was Jesus, and yet he opened not his mouth while he was being beaten and while he suffered on the cross. He was meek. He is the ultimate power under control. And so he came and, and he said, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. If there's even just a little bit of a hint of a fire, Jesus is kind, and he, he says, come to me, I am gentle and lowly of spirit. And so Jesus is, he came to be meek. Jesus came to show and to illustrate that he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He, he went out into the desert and was starving 
and he fasted and he went underwent that terrible test to prove to us that he would be righteous and he did not fulfill his own hunger by uh, turning the stone into bread but he wanted the words of god first he says man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from god and so jesus came to be to to become to be the premise of these beatitudes jesus came to be the one to hunger and thirst jesus came to be the one to show mercy he came to this earth and showed mercy to those of us who deserve to be condemned to hell. And the cross even says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Wow. Jesus is amazing in that way. Jesus came to demonstrate what a purity of heart was. He says, I do everything just for the Father. I don't do anything for myself. I'm, I'm living for exactly what the Father wants me to live. And the Bible says that he set his face like a flint. He was, he was steadfastly going to um, Jerusalem. He was fulfilling his mission. He came to do what he was supposed to do, no wavering. And Jesus is the peacemaker of all peacemakers. Remember when I said that peacemaking is one thing to intermediate between two other people. And in that sense, Jesus is a mediator, right? He is there, is, the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one who stands in the gap between God the Father and between us, and he makes it possible for us to be reconciled. He's the mediator. He's a peacemaker between um, ourselves and God. But you also need to understand that Jesus himself is also the offended party. He is God as well as the mediator. And so Jesus himself is offended, and he takes the offense. Not only does he make peace for us with God, he takes all of the blame for the offense upon himself. He pays the entire penalty. That's the most amazing thing about the gospel, is that Jesus makes peace with you and I by paying our debt. It's not that we do 1%, he does 99%, so at least we all did our best. No, he does it all. Jesus pays every single part of our debt and makes it possible for us to have peace with God. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus was persecuted. He was treated awful. And remember the expansion? Blessed are you when people insult you. They insulted Jesus. The insults that have fallen upon him, are, are, you know, that should have been fallen on me, have fallen on Jesus. And he was insulted and persecuted, and people said false things about him. They said that he even cast out demons by Satan. They said lies about Jesus. And th so Jesus came to be the premise of the Beatitudes. Each of those things Jesus came to be to demonstrate who he was. But I also want to say that Jesus is the promised blessing of all eight of the Beatitudes. If he came to be the premise of them or the condition, the, the first statement, blessed are the, blessed are the, he is the one who's the promise blessing. He's the one who's the promise. Look at the poor spirit. Blessed are the poor spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is the reward. He himself is the reward that we get. He's the reversal. And Jesus himself is our comfort and our peace. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my children. He's the one who can take away our sorrows and wipe away our tears. Jesus is the one. He's the, he's the one in whom we find comfort. We're not comforted by circumstances or by bodily comforts or by medicines or a blanket. We're comforted in our souls with a comfort that all can only come from a person who loves us totally and paid for our sins. And so Jesus is the one, 
He's the inventor of the earth. He's the one who holds the whole earth together. So Jesus, when when the, he says that uh, the meek will inherit the earth, bless our meek for they will inherit the earth, he, Jesus is the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Jesus, and we get to receive all the blessings that he's done for us. And look at this. When we hunger and thirst, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled with righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. He's the one who fills my cup overfilled. I am perfect. I have overflowing righteousness. Not just adequate righteousness, but overflowing because Jesus did it all. And then he added to it and obeyed in spite of the fact that he did not need to. He did it for love. And so Jesus is exactly the promised blessing. He is my righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Where else can I see more evidence that Jesus has mercy on me than the way he died on the cross to take my sin so that I would not have to. I would not have to bear that punishment. And so out of his infinite mercy, he has given us his great and loving gifts and, and loves us so much. And so Jesus is the source of our mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they get to see God. Jesus is God. I get to see him face to face. And the Bible says, when I see him, I'll be like him, for I'll see him as he is. And so I get to have the privilege of having a resurrection body and a version of myself that he's always wanted it to be and that I've always wanted me to be. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Jesus gives us the power. He gives us the right to be called children of God by receiving him, by trusting him. He is the one who makes us part of God's family. We are adopted as sons because of his work as the elder brother. He paid all of our debt for us, and he takes us home. And so again, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, if you're talking about wanting to be on the right side of history, you want to be on Jesus's side of the history, because Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus came to be the promise of the, of the Beatitudes. Jesus is the promised blessing of the Beatitudes. And I want to also say that part of this is how we come to Jesus. The Beatitudes describe for us, at least in part, how it is that you and I come to Jesus in faith. And so again, I've mentioned this a little bit, but when we're poor in spirit, I want to say that the first four Beatitudes are the are basically the prerequisites or the descriptions of what happens when a person realizes, when, you, when I realized that I have nothing to offer God and I need to be saved and I am deserving of all of the punishment of hell and I want to be righteous. When those things come into life, I'm poor in spirit. I realize that I have nothing to earn my merit. There's no sacrament or no... Um, practice or no ritual that a person can do to me. Um, there's no magic in anything I do or say. I'm poor in spirit. And Jesus is the one who welcomes me into the kingdom when I'm poor in spirit. And I need to repent of my sin. I need to see it as really bad. I can't just add Jesus on as a life insurance rider, some sort of, eh, I kind of like to get out of hell, so I'll, I'll say that I believe in Jesus but still not actually mourn over my sin. You know, to the same extent and to the degree that I understand how awful sin is, then I will mourn for it. 
And when I see how much Jesus had to pay for my sin, then I can mourn for it. But if I don't see how bad sin is, or if I don't see how bad Jesus is, uh, what the price he had to pay was, then I'm missing out on what it means to really mourn for my sin. And so as I come to Jesus in faith, I'm poor. I bring nothing on my own. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what it's like. And I realize that I'm, I'm unable. I have no strength. I'm unable to be anything. I, I bring no merit. I need a Savior. And I so, so much want to be made right. I want my guilt gone. I don't want to be guilty. And so those first four Beatitudes really describe how I come to Jesus. And then I would have to submit that the next four is how we live in Jesus. And so this is a description of what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. This is where we go next. And so if I am a follower of Jesus, one of the main characteristics is that I'm going to be merciful to other people. Just like Jesus told the story about the, the person, the, um, the one who had his debt forgiven, and he begged his master, oh, please, please forgive me, you know, give me time, give me time, and the master canceled his debt. And then he goes over to a fellow servant and starts to choke him and says, pay me those two pennies you owe me. And, it, and the master says, you wicked person, after all that I've forgiven you, all of the huge, in, insurmountable, unpayable debt, and then you turn around and try to collect a small debt from another person. So when I'm a believer in Jesus and I understand what it's like to live in Jesus, one of the main characteristics of following Jesus is to be merciful to other people. If there's anybody that ought to understand that other people hurting me is nothing compared to what I've done to God, it's me. I have to understand how much I've been forgiven. And that's the basis upon which I can forgive other people. I can be merciful to them because their offense to me, there's nothing you can do to me. There really isn't. There's nothing you can do to me that measures up to how bad I have been to God. And that's true for every one of us. And when we remember that, then we have mercy for others. And so being a merciful person is how we live in Jesus. And being pure in heart is how we live in Jesus. When we have Jesus as our greatest treasure, when we have a single focus, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, later he says, where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. You cannot serve God and money. You need to have a single-minded heart. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, when he's the one person, when you've sold all to buy the, the field with the treasure, it's like the kingdom of heaven. Or when you go and sell everything to buy the one pearl of great price, it's it's like the kingdom of heaven. And so to be pure in heart is to have the right ordered affections. I want and love the right things, which is God and Jesus's work and Jesus's people and God's word. And so I love Jesus with all my heart. And as my greatest treasure, he makes me pure in heart. And when those things are true, I can see God working all over the place. I'll get to see God in my flesh someday. I'll see Jesus face to face. That's a perfect promise someday. But even now, there's already this manifestation that when Jesus is your greatest treasure and you see him in everything, you actually see him in everything. You can see how God is working. And so a big characteristic of what it means to be in Jesus is to be merciful, to be pure in heart, single-minded, to have a new ordered affection, and then, of course, to be a peacemaker. 
to go and when, when we have offended someone, to be quick to ask for forgiveness. And if somebody offends us, to overlook the offense, if at all possible, and to be quick to forgive. And if someone has hurt us so deeply, to go to them in truth and love and to ask them and explain to them what they've done and ask them to please reconcile. And so that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. We care about other people. And when we do that, guess what? People are going to say, look at all those, those Christians love each other. They forgive each other. They get along without, they have different skin color. They have different economic status. They have different educational status. They have different languages. They, but look, at they're, they're, all, they're all children of God. That's what we look like when we are peacemakers. And I have to say that if we're going to live in Jesus, Jesus himself said, anyone who wants to live a godly life in, in me, and Paul says, anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because the world hates Jesus. It's kind of funny how the world will respond to us. There, there'll always be two kinds of responses. There'll be an intrigued, um, pleasant response. They'll be grateful for the followers of Jesus, the impact we have on our communities, and will to some that Paul says will have the aroma of life, will smell like a sweet aroma. And, and those are usually people who eventually come to Jesus. But we bless our city, we bless the people around us. But then there are those who hate Jesus, who hate God, and they want to assert their own way. And they will respond with hatred. And it's unavoidable. And, and you and I know there are teachings of Jesus right now that when we stand on the corner and say, this is what Jesus says about how we're supposed to use our bodies and that we are not supposed to engage in sexual immorality in any of these categories, the only way that God has ever given us his, our bodies is as a temple. Our body is not a playground, it's a temple. And it's supposed to be used for God. And there's only two ways that you can fulfill God with your body in a sexual way. One is to be a single person who's totally devoted to Jesus. And you never in any way engage in any sexual activity because your life is for Jesus. And that's a rare gift, but it's a great gift when given. And the only other way that Jesus ever allows for sexual expression is in a committed uh, covenant relationship between a, a man and a woman. And so you have to be married and you have to be a man and a woman and it has to be a covenant. It has to be a promise-based. It's not a consumer relationship. It's a promise-based relationship. And so you are safe and you can trust the other person and, you, and you're committed and promised till death do us part in sickness and in health. And so the covenant, so that's a very, very narrow teaching of Jesus about, and, and to say that anything else is acceptable would be against Jesus's teaching. And that statement that I just made is one of the reasons that we're going to be persecuted. We're going to be called narrow-minded. We're going to be called bigoted. We may lose our jobs or lose our ability to do business because we're not following the latest trends of the, of the world around us. And so it's true that if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. May it be only for him, of course. We don't want to be uh, irritating people. We don't want to be obnoxious people. We shouldn't suffer for that. Peter makes that real clear. Anybody can suffer for that. No, we should live such good lives among the pagans that they see our, our, our Father and they glorify our Father in heaven. So like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you live a good life among the pagans and they'll see your good works and they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. But he also says you will be persecuted by those who hate. 
And most often the ones who hate us are either religious and so they hate our purity, our, our, our commitment to the word of God or the atonement of the Lord Jesus on the cross, or it's our culture and they hate us for our cultural um, stands on marriage or, or economics or any of those other things too. And so this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I just hope that this little discussion on the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular the Beatitudes, has been interesting to you, all those definitions and structures. But again, most importantly, to see Jesus, he came to be the premise of each of the eight Beatitudes. He is the promised blessing of all of the Beatitudes. He is our righteousness that we're filled with. And this is how we come to know Jesus. And this is how we live in Jesus. All right? Well, thanks for listening. Let me close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much that Jesus is our righteousness. And, you know, even if I didn't get everything all straight today, I, I sure was reminded as I heard my own words, I was reminded how good you are, Jesus, to me, that you, you paid all the price. You, as the peacemaker of peacemakers, as the one who was the most offended party, I, I was one of, I would have been one of the ones who called crucify, crucify. I, just like all other human beings, we hate you. And yet your grace breaks in and, and you not only forgive our offense, you pay the whole price. Jesus, not only did you pay for my sin by living a perfect life, you also died in my place and paid it again. So you, you had the positive deposit and then you also took all the negative consequences and you paid it double. So I thank you so much. Jesus, help me to be worthy even to be persecuted for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, our website is the best place to check wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and may you grow in his grace.